You're listening to Sustainability Inc., a new limited series podcast from Boston Consulting Group, produced by Fortune Brand Studio. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fortune. Hello, I'm Gaia Vince, host of Sustainability Inc. Throughout the 12 episodes in our series, we'll be delving into the innovative, inspiring missions of top companies around the globe, talking to the business leaders at the front lines of achieving real climate impact. With the stakes higher than ever and the opportunity to make a difference greater than ever, these are the stories to inspire us all to join the urgent fight for true sustainability. Money makes the world go round, and it can make the world go round in a clean or a dirty way, in a fair or unjust way. We decide. Now today, a lot of the world's money is embedded in unsustainable, dirty industries and technologies. And if we're to meet our net zero emissions targets, we need to decarbonise fast. That means redirecting the world's money to drive those goals. With me to talk about the knotty issue of sustainable investing is Vinay Shandal, Managing Director and Partner at Boston Consulting Group. So if we look at investors and we look at banking, that huge financial market, how have investors' attitudes towards sustainability changed over time? If you look at what came out of COP, and you see the big headline, $130 trillion committed to net zero among banks, asset owners, asset managers. You just look at that and you compare it to the number from two or three months ago. The growth in that number has been way more rapid than anybody had expected. Nobody thought that that announcement was going to drop in you know, day three of COP26. But my view on it is a bit more tempered. I, I don't know that that's indicative of the financial sector suddenly waking up and saying, this planet is in trouble unless we get to net zero. And so we're going to do everything we can to create climate impact while still delivering on returns. I don't think that's the case. If you go across pools of capital, that's not the attitude. And frankly, if we're going to have any hope of solving the climate crisis, that's where we need the capital to get. And so therefore, I think it's kind of irresponsible. And we heard some headlines coming out of COP saying, we've delivered the money needed to finance the transition. Well, you haven't. Committing to net zero is not the same thing as financing the transition. And therefore, my worry is not only have investors not embraced the challenge as wholeheartedly as we need the sector to do so, but language like we've delivered the money risks creating complacency, risks having the opposite effect of what we need. So agreeing a target on paper is not the same as actually delivering the deep greening the sector needs. Here to discuss more about how carbon and climate influence investing is Rock Creek founder and CEO, Afsana Mashayeki Beshlos. Now, the whole world is going through this huge transition and will be for the next few decades towards decarbonising our energy supply and moving all of the world's global production into net zero modes of operation. And that, of course, changes our economic situation. But that economic system can also be a driver of this change. And sustainable investment is one of the main roles Tell me, why is it important and what role does it have to play in this bigger, more global, all-encompassing transition we're all undergoing? As you said, obviously, financial allocation of resources is a key way to make assets go in a certain way or a different way. 
Finance is really important, but as you very well know, it has to go alongside science as well as technology and new ventures that, again, need finance to sort out. And then, of course, government regulation. And then last but not least, our habits, right? How we live, how we consume, what mode of transport we use, where we live. So you need all of those things to come together for us to be able to do this very important system change that you refer to. And this system change is itself driving a change in investments too. It makes investing in some industries more risky from a financial point of view. Fossil fuel energy can become less attractive compared to other faster turnaround investments in renewables, can't it? Gas and coal companies, what they're seeing is that the amount of investment they need to put in today, it's generally a very long-term project, right? You need to invest five, six, ten years for another you know, 20 years looking ahead. I think that the question is not just what they're not going to do, but looking at the totality of their projects, looking at the details of their capital allocations. So, I mean, is it becoming financially risky to start being involved in investments like that? If you look at investors, whether they're insurance companies, pension funds, sovereign funds, endowments and foundations, up to a year ago, the conversation was very different. People really were not looking at the risks. Maybe insurance companies were a little ahead, but really the rest of the financial community was really behind. They were reading about climate change, but they were not really realizing that this is such a big risk. It does feel like something different is going on. Is it affecting shareholders? Is it affecting customers? Who's driving this change? in investments? I think we're having a bottom-up and a top-down situation. You have the next generation, young people. Unfortunately, their voice is not heard, even though it is their planet too. Young people are really, really concerned about climate, and they really are going to choose where they live, what they buy, what they invest in, the mode of transport based on climate. Are you seeing younger people investing differently from their older relatives? Oh, no question. But what I'm seeing that is a huge change. If you walk into an investment committee of a foundation or a university endowment, a lot of conversation about what does our portfolio look at? How does our carbon footprint look at? Almost a year ago, people sometimes sort of their eyes glazed over when you try to bring this up. Now, I know at Rock Creek, you have missions and goals in order to make this transition yourself, and you're using data. Tell me a little bit about that. So we started the firm on the base of having the computer scientists integrated into the investment teams and creating tools that allowed us to keep data on a couple of things. One is on broadly ESG, you know, on climate-related measures, on housing affordability, health education impact, financial inclusion. So that allowed us to do two things. One is to measure around the impact of the investments we were making. Two, finding companies and funds that actually do this, plus keeping data on the general community of what they were doing. So that work really has been going on for almost 18, 19 years. And then separately, we did the same thing, Gaia, on diversity. We kept the same data on companies and on funds on their diversity gender, racial, and other forms of diversity. So as we speak today, we've created something, but capital sometimes is a little lazy, so you make it a lot more accessible, and they're more likely to go there versus not. So I think that's what I'm very excited about. So this tool really is 
It's like a system of dams and flows so that you can channel that money better to places where it can have more benefit and less harmful effects, I guess. Absolutely. And we have visualization because for all of us, when they have a lot of data, how do you use this data is also important. So we've done some visualization tools on top of it so that you can see with different scenarios, right? Looking at a company again or looking at a you know, particular investment and seeing what it has been doing historically, but what it says it will do, you know, if this scenario happens or this other scenario happens, what would happen? Because you need that as well. You need to look into the future and see how things can evolve. Because if anything we know is things are moving really fast. Now, when we look ahead, people are already trying to change the way they invest. They're looking at where their pensions are going for the first time and all sorts of things that most ordinary people hadn't actually hadn't occurred to them to care about. When you look ahead in the next sort of five, 10 years, how do you see this market changing? The same amount as um, the Fed pushed into the markets with the huge liquidity push. Almost that same amount is managed by like the top 10 largest pension funds in the US. So the amount that pension funds do manage is huge, right? The amount that the sovereign funds manage is huge. The amount that retail is now investing is huge. So I think that again is the power of finance in the sense that everybody from the young people we we're talking about earlier to pensioners who never really thought about where their money is going. A lot of where pension investments were going was investing in certain funds that would ensure that wages are below living wage. And so their pensions made sure that they're paid submarginal wages. Their pensions made sure that, you know, sometimes they got invested in areas that destroyed jobs, but didn't create jobs necessarily, because, you know, you can transform the economy, you need different kinds of jobs. So I think they're much more cognizant but again, that's why I'm excited about data, because you need the data. If you give complete data, it will speak for itself. Better, more widely available and detailed data is transforming the way we understand and direct our investments towards sustainability. Many of the industries and technologies that will get us there are still in their infancy and in need of investment today. So Vinay, where should we be putting our money which are the next big innovative markets? I don't pretend to know which technology is definitely going to scale, but I have a view on technologies that we need to get behind where there's a lot of hope that they'll scale. One is direct air capture. I think this notion of removing carbon from the air, or at least removing it in places with high concentration, is a desperately needed technology, especially if we're going to continue you know, using cement and steel you know, capturing the emissions from that process is vital and critical. I think the second that I get excited about is grid utility scale storage and high temperature transmission lines for any hope of really driving penetration of wind beyond just offshore wind serving coastal markets. I think that needs to take grip. Nuclear, for whatever reason, remains controversial, right? You know, we think about nuclear accidents, but 50% of Ontario's energy supply is nuclear. Embracing nuclear, scaling nuclear needs to be part of the solution. And then finally, and I think this is getting a lot of attention now, uh, green hydrogen would be the four that I get excited about. But then there's this whole other part of the market on regen, which I think is just going to, it, it's going to just scale once you get the large players, either the large fast food chains, the large single commodity providers just embracing regen. 
So if all potatoes suddenly were grown regeneratively, well, you've just kind of completely transformed the industry, that single vertical. So I think commodity by commodity, converting to regen will be very exciting. And there's a whole host of businesses that are being formed around that opportunity. Regenerative agriculture could dramatically improve the environmental credentials of farming and massively reduce our carbon emissions. But it's still in its early stages and needs substantial investment to scale up the industry. Here's Marcelo Marzola, CEO of the regenerative farming company Veda, to explain further. We define VEDA as a regenerative farming company. So what that means is we like to say that our mission is to increase the number of regenerative acres, first in the U.S. and then globally. We will do that by farming ourselves. So we're, we're farmers, we're producers. We're going to set up farms in different parts of the U.S., growing different crops. But then these farms will also be used as hubs out of which we plan to provide this surround care so that other farmers can take on regenerative practices and enjoy the benefits of going in the regenerative direction. Now, one of the biggest problems with agriculture generally is the way it works financially. It can be quite hand-to-mouth or season-to-season for farmers, and there are a lot of risks involved and a lot of vulnerabilities. So for farmers to completely change their model, they need some stability and they need some help with sustainable investing. How important is that as a driver? Oh, it's critical. It's very important. Right now, it seems that the farmers are getting all the pressure to be able to do this transition. So one of the things that we believe is important is how can we create a platform that allows for the other stakeholders that want to be part of this movement, and I'm talking about stakeholders outside of the production side of farming, but you can think about people or entities that are upstream or downstream from the farmer that want to help in making this movement happen, but also need a better structure to uh, de-risk this process from their side. So how can we get that platform in place that allows for all of these parties that want to be part of this movement to join forces with the producers, with the farmers, and go in that direction? So basically, that's what VEDA is doing. And amongst those factors is financing. And do you think that whole financial landscape has changed and people want to invest more in this kind of transition, this green transition? I believe so. The ultimate argument that we can bring up when we're thinking about the adoption of regenerative agriculture is that it will increase farmer profitability. It will increase farmer livelihood. It will do that by reducing the dependency on external inputs, by bringing in new markets, new revenue streams that the farmer doesn't have access to these days. So when you look at the profit per acre question, at the end of the day, it just makes sense to go in the regenerative agriculture direction. If you're an investor, you're investing into an asset that has the possibility to have higher profit margins than probably what you currently have in your portfolio. So I would say that the appetite from the investor side has to do not only with the fact that it makes sense to go in these investments from an environmental perspective, but also, and as importantly, because at the end of the day, it's probably a sound and better investment from a financial profile as well. Obviously, it's in everybody's interest that more money flows into the sustainable investments. What do you need to help make that happen? Is it better government regulations? Is it a price on carbon? What are you waiting for? It's interesting because when we think about innovation and advancements in any field, that generally takes us to venture capital and the capital that's used to running higher risks. 
But when you think about agriculture and you think about natural resources, those are investments that are generally very capital intensive, right? So if you think about the traditional investors that would take on the level of risk that is associated to innovation and the venture capital side, they're used to signing checks of a smaller size than what is necessary to go about changing the production sector of agriculture, right? And then if you think about it from the other perspective, the entities that are used to signing the checks in the amounts that the capital expenditures that come with agriculture demand, those are the more traditional investors, the institutional investors, folks that are generally used to a lower level of risk, right? So what we have to do at the end of the day is find a way to balance that and understand what the risks are and how can we bring a better perception of what the true risks in this movement are. We need a platform that allows for the de-risking of this investment. We have to get the policymakers going in a direction that supports regenerative agriculture. We have to get these new revenue streams established. And what about the cost of finance? I mean, we spoke about risk just now, and some of these are riskier because what you're doing is often novel compared to the kind of business as usual, which is very polluting. I think regenerative agriculture is actually much less risky than conventional agriculture at this point. So, and just to illustrate what I mean by that, if you look at how much conventional agriculture is dependent on external inputs at this point and how that industry is outside of the producer's control, you're basically sitting and waiting for what's gonna to happen to your input supplier's prices as you're planning your next year. And if you're hooked on those chemicals, if you're hooked on that production system, you're basically hostage to whatever is happening outside of the farm gate. Whereas when you think of regenerative agriculture, one of the points of regenerative agriculture is reducing this dependency on external inputs, which from a cost perspective makes it a lot less risky. Obviously, these farms, they're all in the countryside and some of them are much more remote. And if we're talking about a global push towards, say, regenerative agriculture, you want to know that your investment, your investment into sustainability is going in the right way. How do you ensure, given the difficulties with contacting and following up these different supply chains, that your investment is being made as you would wish? Well, the one word answer is technology. Actually, in agriculture today, we probably have more technology than we're able to deal with in practice. This technology costs money, and most farmers cannot go about sifting through this technology and finding out what's worth it and what's not worth it. So part of what we're doing with Veda is looking at what's out there and building this technology stack that allows us to bring real-life, real-time information about what's happening at the farms to a very granular level, but at the same time be able to synthesize that into something that is digestible and understandable from a layfolk perspective, if you will. Well, farming is not an easy business. Transforming the farming industry is even harder. Marcelo, why have you chosen to do this? In the case of agriculture, you're gonna make more money at the end of the day. You're gonna be able to lay your head down at night in the pillow, in your pillow, and, and be comfortable that you're doing something that's good for the environment, it's good for society, and it's giving you more money at the end of the day from an investment profile, so there's no concessions made. Investing your time and money in anything is always a bit of a gamble, but investing in some of these very new, sustainable projects can feel even more uncertain. Here's Vinay to discuss why it makes sense to do it anyway. So we're not talking about some sort of charitable endeavour that companies do, a philanthropic mission to prove that they're doing something on climate. You're saying that this can be a profitable venture. Absolutely. Now, look, I think it's not easy. It requires a different type of capability than most owners and managers have. But let me tell you about the value point before I get into the how hard it is point. 
first of all, 40% of the emissions in those eight supply chains can be removed in a way that's essentially ROI positive. So it's a cost play. Number two, if you get your finger on the pulse of the consumer, there's always exceptions, but increasingly people are buying green. I think there's increasing number of categories. You know, I think we're gonna see this in fashion. We're seeing this already in mobility. I think we're gonna see this in food where people are gonna start using climate as a driver for choice. And then beyond that, where do employees wanna work? A company that's on the path to becoming green or a company that's happy to be gray? And then you look at cost of capital, you look at trading multiple, you look at risk from a future price on carbon, the value is there. But it's hard to get, Gaia, because decarbonizing a business isn't flipping a switch. You need real expertise. It's a business transformation. Balancing investments is a complicated issue for businesses and for consumers interested in the operations and habits of those businesses. Companies like EQ Investors are helping to ease the route to sustainable investing. Here's Damien Lardoux, the company's head of impact investing. Tell me, what is the power of sustainable investing? The power of sustainable investing is very much about creating systemic change. We've been thinking about capitalism is one where we've not been looking at externalities and we've not really thought about the resources we were extracting from the planet and whether those resources will be there you know, forever. So the, really the idea is to push companies to encourage companies to become purpose-driven companies and not only financially-driven companies. Try to change the way we as a society and our companies and also our governments, the way they think about moving away from being too short-termist and then having that long-term view instead. That is a huge systemic change. Does that mean leaving profit behind? Can we align profitability with environmental and equitable, just, socially sustainable goals as well? We think actually the two go in hand quite well together. Because if you think about it, you know, if you're a company and you've developed a product, a service, which is innovative by nature and which is really helping to meet an unmet needs, or if you want, which is solving a problem, a social environmental problem we're facing, then your market is big and you could argue, unfortunately, your market is growing. So as a company, you're solving a problem, but then also, I guess, your bottom line, so I guess your profits are also seeing an increase because there's more and more people, there's more and more companies that need your product and your service. For this idea to become more mainstream, for financial markets to move beyond just the financial metric into the environmental and social metric, that's actually quite new. Are we seeing a change? And if so, what is driving that and who is driving it? There's no doubt that you and I, the way we consume, the way we behave, the way we invest as well, we want to do it more sustainably. And obviously, when you ask people what are their primary concerns, often they mention climate change or the environment. So clearly, this is you know, at the top of everyone's agenda. What shareholders are asking companies to provide, give me that data and how your company could suffer from this climate change. And I think, you know, on the back of that, then companies are really saying, well, God, if my shareholders are really concerned about that and then are starting to price in the valuation of my company, that climate risk, then I need to act on it. Because obviously, as a CEO of a company or top management of a company, I want the share price to go up because usually that's how I'm being paid. So if my shareholders are telling me that the only way they're going to put more money in my company is that if I really think about the climate, then I will. So shareholders demand less risky investments and the climate is changing financially. What could help drive this? We're still at this stage where a lot of this is voluntary. 
what we need to be aware of, at some point, it will become regulatory. And when the regulation comes, we don't know how big the impact could be. So I guess we're still at the stage where you know we need to do as much as we can. I think there's still a huge amount of education to do. So would you say that financial companies have to engage more in this sphere than they would in a traditional loan or a traditional investment? If you, as an investor, really want to limit your risk, you need to be able to measure it first. So obviously, uh, that's the first engagement point with companies you invest in or companies you're supporting through, you know, the fixed income uh, kind of insurance, for example, is that, yeah, you need to have that data. When you have that data, then there are probably areas where you think they can improve. And also because as an investor, you tend to see what other companies are doing and you probably know a bit better potentially than some of the companies themselves. Right. So it's with everybody's interest to start acting on this. And in terms of EQ investors, do you have specific goals in mind? What path are you taking towards building your sustainable investment portfolio? We've got several propositions. The kind of a flagship, the one with the longest track record is one very much where we've taken, if you want, an impact investing lens. So really the idea is to invest in companies that are developing innovative products and services which are helping to challenge the many social and environmental issues we face. So investing in these great companies that have this intention, if you want to do good, then pushing those companies to report on the good they're doing. But clearly for us, what's really important, the good they're doing through their products and services. And then the third pillar then is engage and get them to do better. So that's for us has been a key part of what we've been doing. When we talk about the difference between traditional investing and this new push for green or sustainable investing, some companies, some banks, traditional banks can be reluctant to invest in them. The rates can be higher. Why is that? What is the risk there financially? I would argue that the risk is lower because you're investing in kind of, I guess, future-proofed businesses. So yes, for us, you know, it makes perfect sense. Actually, for me, I sleep better at night knowing that the companies that myself and our clients are investing in are part of the solution rather than part of the problem. So why is it that, I guess, the incumbents have not been moving quickly enough? There's partly the unknown. Maybe you could argue 10, 20 years ago that investment universe was relatively small. I think today that's no longer the case. So I think the opportunities are there, you know, irrespective of where you want to invest, how you want to invest whether kind of more aggressively or more cautiously, you know, you can definitely build portfolios for all types of risk profiles. So the smaller and more agile financial institutions are able to get a gallop on them, really, aren't they? Sure. And what's interesting is that then, you know, when you see some activists or actually even people in the street, you know, starting mentioning some of those large names saying, you know, these companies are part of the problems, this is creating a massive brand damage to them not many, but some are willing actually to move away from fossil fuel quite aggressively, then these are going to be, in our opinion, the long-term winners. Damien Lardoux on the benefits of being a front-runner in the sustainable transition. But how do we drive this movement forward faster, Vinay, so that more of the world's money goes into building a cleaner, greener future? I think some of it is blended finance. There are great technologies that we desperately need that can have huge climate impact that risk hanging out in the valley of death because a lack of capital and a lack of focus. So that's certainly one. The other one is climate activists. When I was in Glasgow, I met some climate activists and I said to them, the money is listening to you. What are you going to do with that influence? And right now what you're pushing is the divestment, which for all these reasons is not going to create climate impact. What we need climate activists to do is two things, pressure capital to in turn pressure management teams of gray assets to decarbonize. 
because that's not science fiction. That's 40% of the emissions and 50% of the emissions that could be taken out today. That's thing number one. Thing number two is investing in some of these businesses. None of this is simple. Moving global finance is a systemic challenge that requires determined effort from businesses, governments, and the billions of money handlers, us. Without this effort, we will not see the urgent and dramatic change we need to keep our planet habitable. And if that's not enough motivation, as the pioneers of green finance have shown us, sustainable investment is not just possible, it's profitable. Sustainability Inc. is a Boston Consulting Group podcast produced by Fortune Brand Studio without the participation of the Fortune editorial staff. Join us next time when we'll be discussing the exciting changes that companies are making to reduce waste and pollution. From water conservation to insect farming, innovation is everywhere. Thank you for listening to Sustainability Inc. Please subscribe, download and leave comments and ratings wherever you listen.